Well, good morning. A happy New Year's Eve Eve. Uh, this morning we're going to look at this passage from 2 Corinthians that you just heard. Uh, and we're going to focus on a theme this morning of repentance. And here's why. Uh, I read a stat recently uh, that most New Year's resolutions that people make every year are abandoned by January 12th. <clears throat> people don't even make them two weeks in. And the reasons are, are a myriad of different reasons. Uh, the, uh, the resolutions are too uh, big. Uh, people actually don't want to change, so they don't. There's a, there's a bunch of different reasons the article states. The reason I tell you this is because often I feel like repentance can be similar to New Year's resolutions. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. Shortly after uh, college, this makes the story a lot worse, and, and some of our, our students have heard this story before. Uh, I, well, let, let me tell you this. You know, I, I went to Clemson University. We had a big win last night. Th- this is a story <laughs> about me as a fan, not about football. So I don't want to lose any of you that don't care about football. But uh, back in the day, Clemson didn't, wasn't as much of a powerhouse as they are now. I mean, we struggled for a very long time. Uh, and so I was on edge every Clemson game because we always were going to lose most likely. We started to get a little better, and I'll never forget, we had a, a, a year on our rise to power um, where we were playing Oklahoma in a huge bowl game. And I was watching this game with some of my buddies, fellow Clemson graduates, um, but I was watching at a house of a guy who was kind of a friend of a friend. Wasn't really close to him. We, we were, you know, friendly, but it's not like me and him would just hang out alone, you know. The game was at his house, and he had invited a few other people. One happened to be a University of South Carolina fan. There are rivals. There are some of them in heaven, but most of them are just sinful. Um, and we're watching the game, and I'm on edge, especially when the game starts. I'm always, like, really jittery, you know. Um, and we're watching the game, and Clemson comes out flat. We don't play well. And this guy that I don't know makes a very, very small comment. Something along the lines of, so much for that vaunted Clemson offense. I let him have it. That's all he said. And I snapped. I literally looked him in the face. And I said, where's your team? Your team's not even here. You need to shut your mouth if you're going to talk about Clemson. You can never speak about Clemson in front of me. If you're not going to cheer for them, you just need to get out of the house. Like I literally told him he needed to leave. This wasn't my house. So, everyone's really awkward. It was a very awkward thing to do. Um, the owner of the house, you know, we kind of let it go by five, ten minutes. He said, hey, hey Daniel, um, will you come talk to me really quick in the back room? And so kind of like tail between my legs. I, I walked back there, and he said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why did you do that? And I was like, man, I'm sorry. I was like, you know, he disrespected Clemson, and uh, I was really, you know, stressed, and he's a Gamecock fan, and uh, I just was really upset. And he goes, you disrespected him. This isn't your house. You don't get to say who gets to stay here or not, or gets who, who gets to talk or not. And he literally said, now go out there, tell him you're sorry, or you can leave. Amen. Well, yeah, he should have, <laughs> right? 
And so I did. I went back in there, and I apologized, and I kept my mouth shut for the rest of the game, as I should have. Now, imagine if I had apologized to him, but freaked out on him multiple more times during the game. Or what if I just refused to apologize? The owner of the house would have thrown me out of his house for sure, as he should have. Also, what a man moment by him, right? To take me aside and be like, you need to fix this. I was really proud of him for that. Luckily, I didn't. Uh, I very well could have. But we've all, well, maybe you haven't acted like that before because you're not as much of a crazy person as me. But there's a semblance of that that we've all done before, right? We've asked for forgiveness and apologized for something. uh, And then... Unfortunately, some of us have repeated the same thing five minutes later or the next day or the next week. There's a difference between forgiveness and repentance is what I'm trying to get at. Forgiveness is about having contrite hearts and the humility to say you were wrong, but repentance is actually a reorientation of your actions. It's a reorientation of your actions away from your sinfulness and walking in sin and reorienting it to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is about the heart, but repentance is the action step of forgiveness. Or yes, certainly intertwined, but repentance calls us to something. It's actually changing your behavior. And today we're going to look at how this idea, this repentance, is an everyday action for us as Christians. It's a lifestyle for us. And this is why I think it's appropriate for us to talk about it two days for New Year's Eve. Uh, We're all guilty of making these New Year's resolutions and then abandoning them. We look at the New Year as a time that we can reorient our lives, fix the things that we want fixed about ourselves or in our life. But if we treat repentance like a New Year's resolution that we can abandon whenever we want, we miss out on the point, which is to reorient our sinful behaviors and actions and reorient them to Jesus Christ. That is a lifestyle. Anytime someone makes a change, whether it's a diet or New Year's resolution, what what do they always say? Don't do a program. Don't do something extreme. Make a lifestyle change. In the same way, repentance is a lifestyle. So the point, uh, that's the point of what we're talking about. And today we're going to see three things that Jesus gives to us through repentance. You ready? One, Jesus gives us comfort through repentance. Two, he gives us freedom through repentance. And three, he gives us joy through repentance. Will you pray with me as we get into this? Father, um, we come before you knowing that we are sinful and broken and that you have called us to reorient our life and our actions to you. As we go through this, Father, remind us of your goodness, your grace to us in our sin. As though we do not walk in your way, Father, that you still love us, you still care for us, you still died for us. But you also call us to something. So as we go through this passage, convict our hearts and show us uh, your will and your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus gives us comfort through repentance. Here's what's going on in this passage. Uh, In the Bible, Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians. The first is called uh, 1 Corinthians, and the one we just read out of is 2 Corinthians. But in between those two letters, Paul wrote another book, or sorry, another letter to the Corinthians. Uh, We do not have that letter. We don't know what was in it. But in that letter, Paul calls out the church of Corinth. What had happened was Paul had gone to Corinth. 
hung out with them, spent time with the church there, taught them, hung out with them. And in that church, there was a man who sinned against Paul, who hurt him, who didn't treat him well. And the church of Corinth didn't do anything about it. They didn't stick up for Paul. They didn't call him out. They didn't do anything. So when Paul left, he wrote this second letter that we don't have, calling them out for it. And now, in the passage that we just read, Paul is telling them, hey, I know I called you out for this thing, and I'm a little stressed about it. I'm a little, I'm a little anxious to how you received that. How did you take my call to repentance? Do, do you, they still... Uh, honestly, this is a very human thing that Paul's kind of asking him. How did they respond to... We all have done this, right? When you've called a friend out, told them that they've hurt you, you're worried how they're going to receive it, right? If they're actually going to receive it in a restorative way or not. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. And so, he sends his friend Titus to check on them. How are they doing? Well, I'm going to send Titus to go check on them since I can't physically go myself. So he goes, he spends a few days with them there, and then Titus returns to Paul and reports back. And here's what Titus tells Paul. That they had repented. They had called out the guy, they had forced him to repent, and they repented to Titus for not doing it earlier. They apologized to Paul for their actions. And this is what Paul is saying in verses 6 and 7. He said, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us not of your longing, or sorry, told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. What Paul is saying here is that their repentance brought him comfort. The, the repentance that they reported and embodied to Titus, it didn't just bring comfort to Paul, but they were also comforted in it too. And so Paul didn't no longer have to worry about whether he was too harsh with them. The Corinthian church didn't have to worry if Paul was still calling them out. Through the repentance of the church there in Corinth, Jesus brought comfort to everyone. And this means something for us. Repentance brings comfort to us in the same way. But, and I'm sure if some of you saw the title of this sermon... You don't view repentance that way. And, and truthfully, I don't always view repentance as a good, positive thing either. It feels very negative for some reason. I think part of it is, is that being wrong or owning up to our mistakes or even our sin in today's society has become something that is largely absent. No one likes to be wrong, especially not on social media when you can hide behind your keyboard. No one likes to fess up that what they did was actually a mistake, that they actually did mess up. Here's what I think is true for us this morning. Our biggest witness as Christians in today's society, I think, is going to be the way in which we can own up to our mistakes. Repent of our brokenness and our sinfulness. What a light and darkness we will be if we, of all people, can own up to our sinfulness amidst a culture that refuses to do it. This, I think, is how it can be partly a positive thing. And it, it's a hard thing. This is not fun. 
But it's so necessary, and I think as Christians, we can and should be the chief repenters in society. Here's why. We, more than anyone else, we, we, we know that we're sinful. We, more than anyone else, admit that we are sinful, that there's something inherently wrong with us. Thus, we can have the... Con- we also know that there's inherently something true about us too, that Jesus died for us, that he saved us, that he loves us, that there's grace for us. So because of that, we can be the chief repenters in society because we both know our brokenness and know God's love for us. The gospel-centered life puts it this way. Sin is a condition, not just a behavior. So true repentance is a lifestyle, not just an occasional practice. Repentance is ongoing, and conviction of sin is a mark of God's fatherly love for us. So we do a disservice to ourselves, to one another, the world, when we don't live a life of repentance. And and there's nothing more uncomfortable than entering in a room where you know you've done something wrong, right? Or you've wronged someone uh, and you've not addressed it. There's nothing more uncomfortable or painful than being somewhere and someone enters a room who's hurt you and has not repented of that hurt. But as Christians, we can live in a different way. If we as Christians are to live a life of repentance, that means as we interact with one another, we can call one another out if we're in sin. We will be able to, in love, tell our brothers and sisters in Christ when they've hurt us. In a word, we are called at times to call our brothers and sisters to repentance. There's no way around it. That's part of living in community with one another. But it is always for their good, both in the short and long term. So if our hearts aren't personally oriented to Jesus Christ and steeped in his love and humility when we call a brother or sister out in repentance, then we will only cause more hurt than good. And this is exactly what Paul did for the church here in Corinth and what we are called to as well. And and David Layton actually shared a quote this week from Greg Morrison, and I think it couldn't be more applicable to us this morning. It says this, We need friends who are willing to risk wounding our ego in the moment for the long-term good of our soul. You see, it's in our repentance, whether through the conviction of the Holy Spirit or through friends and loved ones that we are in community with, that we find the comfort that we are promised in Christ. It's in the restoration of walking in the way of God through repentance and the way of Jesus that we actually will find comfort. But if you want me to be completely honest, I don't often feel that way. Myself. I don't want people to call me out on things. It's hard. And I think it's because I want to be comfortable. I don't want the uncomfortability that comes with that. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be not good enough. That's what it feels like for me, is the shame there. We think our comfort comes from a bunch of different places. I don't know where it is for you. Maybe it's in righteous indignation, refusing to own up to your own fault no matter how small the conflict. Or perhaps sometimes we think our comfort comes from ignoring those we have hurt, hoping to sweep it under the rug and that it'll just go away over time. 
Often we think that our comfort comes from over-explaining how we are right and they are wrong. We think our comfort will come by numbing ourselves with things, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, rather than actually dealing with our own brokenness and sinfulness. But I can tell you this, each of those coping mechanisms with your sin and brokenness, they actually will bring you comfort for a time. But they will never bring you the abiding, long-term comfort you're looking for. Only looking at your sin and brokenness in the face, owning up to it, to yourself and to God and to others, and laying it at the feet of Jesus Christ, and then reorienting your life around him will bring you the comfort in him you are looking for. And it's not the fleeting, empty comfort of the world that you think you want. It's the abiding, deep, eternal comfort that comes from being fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe. I mean, that's, it's tough to do that. Make no bones about it. I, I don't do this well. But it is so worth it. So where are you fleeing from repentance this morning? What areas of your life are you refusing to bring to his feet, seeking comfort elsewhere? Where do you need to reorient your life away from your sinful behaviors and and orient them to Jesus instead? Where, perhaps, also do you need to talk to a brother or sister in Christ who has hurt you or is living in sin? Where can you maybe find the humility in your own life to own up to your own sin and hurt you have done to others? Look to Jesus Repent in him and find the deep, eternal comfort that comes from being known and loved by him. That brings us to our second point. So we've seen that we must practice a lifestyle of repentance in Jesus. It's an everyday thing. And in doing so, Jesus gives us comfort in being fully known and loved. Now we're going to see that he will give us freedom. So Paul goes on and says this in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So sin is slavery. It's it's death instead of life. It's corruption and pollution to God's good creation and to us as his image bearers. And this is why repentance is so important. Because it's a reorienting away from the dominion of sin and the dominion of darkness and slavery to God's good kingdom and his dominion of freedom and grace. And what Paul is saying here is that grief actually plays a role in producing a repentance that leads to freedom. That's an interesting way to think about sin, that we are to grieve it, our own and others and of the world. He does this by juxtaposing two types of grief, godly grief and worldly grief. So what's the difference? In short, especially in regards to sin, so that's the context that we're talking about grief. Worldly grief is uniquely self-focused. Godly grief is uniquely God-focused. Godly grief is taking a real assessment of our own sinfulness that is inherent to who we are and being broken over it. It's allowing the weight of our actions, our sin, allowing that weight to actually affect us. But to affect us in a certain way. Not in self-pity, but 
to reorient us to Jesus, to experience his grace. Godly grief is being so broken over your sin that we turn to Jesus and experience his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, and the freedom from all that which enslaves us. It is God-focused in that it looks to God for freedom. Worldly grief, according to Paul here, is a myriad of things, I think, but it's being sad or upset for getting caught rather than actually grieving your sin. Worldly grief makes excuses and rationalizes rather than being honest with yourself and with others and with God. Worldly grief is self-pitying rather than self-assessing. Worldly grief often looks like pouting and leads to bitterness in the long term, which is a form of slavery itself. Worldly grief is oriented towards ourselves rather than God. What well, Paul's instructing us here that it, it, it's right to feel saddened about our sin, but only to do so to be reminded of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. It's right to feel grief over your sin, but that grief should never leave us to despair. And here's why. We know we have the love of Jesus already. We know that he loves us, cares for us so much that he died for us. Godly grief is looking at our sin and then giving it to Jesus because we know that he paid for the punishment already and experience the freedom that comes from that. That's where we find freedom, is there. Some of you this morning have a lot going on. Work is a lot. Family is a lot. Your marriage is a lot. A lot of you and me are here this morning stressed and anxious. And on top of that, on top of all of that, we mess up. We sin. And we're trying to figure out what to do with that. That sin in your life that we do to those we're in community with, to our spouses, to our children. And it adds to our stress, to our anxiety, and to our insecurity. I was recently talking to a buddy who had struggled with pornography for a long time. And he told me that uh, it wasn't just looking at porn that was his problem. It was all of the stress and anxiety that came with looking at pornography that was enslaving him. It taking up so much of his mind space the shame and the guilt that he felt while constantly looking at pornography, it, it was, all of it was enslaving to him. It's not just the sin that enslaves us. It's the guilt and shame that we feel on top of our sin from partaking in it that enslaves us as well. And he told me that since he had repented of his pornography addiction, as, as he had reoriented himself away from it and to Jesus, He had felt tremendously less anxious and stressed on a daily basis. This is what this means for us. Reorienting ourselves away from our sin and turning to Jesus gives us that freedom that we're looking for. And that first step, as we've seen, is actually grieving over our sin. It's not pitying ourselves. Uh, It's not rationalizing it, but it's reorienting to Jesus, embracing his love and forgiveness and turning from those patterns. Theologian uh, Clinton Arnold puts it this way, and it's up here if you want to follow along. Repentance does not mean self-torment, nor does it mean being judged by others 
It means turning away from the corruption and mammonism of fallen humankind and letting our hearts be moved by the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. Anyone who has gone through true repentance knows that it makes the heart melt like wax. That it shocks us by showing us our sinfulness. But that should not be the central experience itself. God must be the center of a repentant heart. God who was revealed at at the cross as love and who alone brings reconciliation. This is why I think that looking at repentance, we need to remember it's not only that it's not an inherently negative thing, but it's inherently a restorative thing. Repentance is a restorative action because in our repentance, we are restored in our right relationship with the God of the universe. So what does this look like for you? Where are you grieving your sin in a self-focused, worldly way? Grieving your sin, perhaps, but maybe in a worldly way, not in a godly way. Where is sin enslaving you? And where can Jesus break those chains this morning? In doing that, your life may look different. But you will be free. Sin, hedonism, materialism, licentiousness, they aren't freedom. Walking in a godly manner is freedom. Keller often says that uh, freedom is not a lack of restrictions, but rather having the right ones in place. So uh, a fish is restricted to water, right? Because outside of it, fish will die. But with the right restrictions in water, a fish flourishes. He lives. The same is true of us as Christians. Walking in the way of Jesus Christ will bring us the freedom that we are looking for. It brings us to our third point. So we've seen that we must practice a lifestyle of repentance. Jesus will give us comfort. He will give us freedom. And we'll see finally that he will give us joy. Paul says this in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I, I love what Paul is doing here. Uh, he's saying that he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. He, he sent Titus to see if they had repented, not to punish that man in Col- uh, Corinth that had hurt him, or even to shame that man in Corinth, but he wrote to them so that through, through their repentance that brought them joy and subsequently Paul's joy, they could have restoration in Jesus. And he sees this repentance, and he rejoices, and they rejoice. And he says this in verse 13, Therefore we are comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoice still more at the work of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. It shows that Paul's motives and intentions were pure by calling them out. And this teaches us something. Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, but but it seems like there's a type of repentance that we can do that's worldly as well. There's a sense we can repent or reorient our actions, maybe in spite of the person who's hurt us, or out of a place of bitterness, or maybe perhaps to prove someone wrong. In this way, that type of worldly repentance is uniquely self-focused, as it turns away from others and turns inward and said, but godly repentance is always a turning towards God first, 
a reorienting towards him, and then towards others after that. And that is where joy is found in Christ. Titus rejoiced and his spirit was refreshed when he saw the church of Corinth thriving after their true repentance. They found joy in their own reorienting towards Jesus. And Paul, he also found joy in that. And this is so instructive to us today because Jesus wants us to turn away from our sin and in doing so, turn to him so that we can experience joy in him. Our sin does not distance God from us, but we distance ourselves from God in our sin. The reason we must live a life of confession, forgive, asking for God to forgive us and repentance is because it draws us nearer to him where we can find joy. Again, this is how repentance is inherently restorative and not negative. Now, this joy doesn't mean that you're going to be happy all the time or that everything is going to be great or perfect, but joy in Jesus means that we have found what we are looking for, and that is the person of, and work of Jesus Christ who we're in a relationship with. Each of us are here this morning. We're looking for that. We're looking for something. We're looking for someone or something to bring us joy and contentment. We're hungry for it. And I think it's built into us as humans to search for that and for it to be found in Jesus Christ. And we know actually that it's built into us because even Jesus felt that longing to be in relationship with his Father. Uh, Matthew 4 tells us of of Jesus' temptation in the desert. And And I think it's fascinating to look at it through that lens. Because what happens is Jesus is in the desert, uh, not, he's fasting, and Satan comes to him. And he takes him to the highest mountain. And he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all of their splendor. Look at all of the beauty in the cities, and in the people, and in the things they create, and in the culture, and all of it. Look at it, Jesus. It can all be yours. You can have it. I will give it to you. If you follow me and worship me. The enemy knows that we're hungry. That we're looking for joy and satisfaction in the world. But Jesus tells Satan this. He says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He said, away from me. Jesus tells Satan this. Because it is the heart of repentance to turn away from our sin, the kingdom of the enemy, and turn towards Jesus with our worship and fidelity rather than everything the world offers that they say will bring us joy. That is the heart of repentance. The pleasures and the way of the world will always fail us. It will not give us the joy we're looking for. So my encouragement to you this morning is this. Repent of your seeking for joy and contentment in other things. Seek it first in Jesus And then you will find what you are looking for. Invite him into your day today. Seek him in everything. Read his word. Get to know him better. Repent of all of the ways that you are looking for joy and contentment in everything other than him. And find it instead in him. Find it in him. So I mentioned at the beginning, had I uh, have uh, trash-talked again the South Carolina fan. Um, 
the guy that owned the house would have thrown me out, right? And he should have. And I was wrong in the way I handled that, and he was right. It's amazing about the gospel, at the risk of sounding trite or cheesy, is this. Jesus will never throw us out. We are not always going to reorient our lives well. We are not always going to fix our sinful behaviors. We're going to fall short. Uh, We are going to respond poorly when people call us out. We are going to call people out from wrong motives and intentions and poorly ourselves. And Jesus looks at each of us in our sinfulness and still says, I love you. I died for you. There's grace for you. That is the hope of the gospel. That even when we miss out on our calling as Christians, he still loves us. He still died for us. That doesn't change the nature of our calling and how big it is and um, our call to holiness and repentance. But we already have his love. You already have his love if you have faith in him. We're going to close here. Um, and as Todd comes up in a second for the table, I just want to read over you guys this quote again from Clinton Ardle. It says this. Hear these words. It's not going to be on the screen, so just receive this. It says, God's love is like water. It seeks the lowest place. Yet we cannot make ourselves even humble and lonely in our own strength. We can see ourselves for what we are only in the light of God's omnipotence, his love, his purity, and his truth. Think of your inner being as a clear pond that mirrors the sun, the stars, the moon, all of God's good creation. And if you stir up the mud at the bottom, everything will become unclear and cloudy. And the more you stir it, the cloudier it gets. So become quiet and stand firm against the devil. Then the water will clear again and you will see in its mirror Christ's love to you and to the whole world. Bask in that presence this morning as we reorient our lives away from our brokenness and our sin and to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.